Hello and welcome to Data Driven, the podcast where we explore the emerging field of data science. We bring the best minds in data, software engineering, machine learning and artificial intelligence. Now here are your hosts, Frank Lavinia and Andy Leonard. Hello and welcome back to Data Driven, the podcast where we explore the emerging fields of data science, machine learning and artificial intelligence. If you like to think of data as the new oil, then you can consider us like car talk. However, we can't go on a road trip because of the <laughs> coronavirus lockdown. Uh, so it's just Andy and I kind of um, uh, stuck at home, uh, respectively. And thanks to the magic of technology, we can uh, be on the show at the same time. And uh, how's it going, Andy? It's going well, Frank. How are you doing? Good, good. Uh, you'll probably hear my kids in the background. We will, um, and you know what, Frank? I think it's fine. I, you know, I'm gonna. I, I I understand why you said the word stuck, but you and I work remotely an awful lot. We usually record like this. Um, it's Diasto's less in the background. It's your place most of the time, but you have a uh, couple of young boys there, and you need to be in the room with them when mom, who's also working from home, is you know is doing some of her work. So I, I you know, kudos to you to both of you. Um, for uh, oh, for finding a way to manage this, it's, everybody's going through these sorts of things, and I'm sure that uh, none of our listeners will mind hearing your sons play in the background. Well, hopefully, they won't start fighting. So that's <laughs> that's all I ask. That's well, all I ask. If they do, so I think a lot know? of folks can relate, though. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So we're recording this on April 16th. Uh, we Speaking of kids, we had your son on, which uh, if the order of uh, recording goes the way I planned it in my head, uh, that would have been released last week, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and um, which I thought was a pretty good uh, discussion on um, kind of how STEM is taught, how STEM is perceived yep. by quote unquote policymakers. Yep. Um, and how the actuality of it is and some of the interesting stuff your son is doing um, with Raspberry Pi and stuff like that. Yeah, I was, uh, I was first, I was very proud of him. I, um, you know, the work that he's doing and he's, he's had his, uh, his hands in machine learning for really a couple of three years now. I want to say he was 14 and um, I came into his room, you know, just checking on him to say something or something. I saw uh, Mario brothers playing in the background. <laughs> I was like, what is he, you know, he was, he, he had done his schoolwork. He was homeschooled at the time. He'd done his schoolwork. So he knew what he wants. But um, later talking to him about it, he said, he actually came and got me and he said, okay, dad, it took, um, you know, with, I think it was like six, um, um, you know, neural uh, nodes here. He was able to, you know, Mario was able to figure this out in something like four hours or something. And he, you know, later, he said, I wonder what it would do if I added a node. I wonder what that would do to it. And I'm kind of sitting there with my mouth hanging open going, show dad more about that. Uh, nice. <laughs> but he's, he's been doing nice. it for a while. I know your kids are interested in the same thing. They're younger. So Stevie's 17 now. And, you know, and I know that uh, your sons are, are coming up in this, in this age as well. They are, uh, I mentioned Mark Tabadillo in that show as he, he referred to digital natives. They are digital natives. And, um, yeah, that, that comes with some, some pretty interesting stuff. So I'm just glad we were able to, you know, to record that show as he gets ready for his first SQL Saturday presentation here on that topic. So, And that's all assuming that we were able to overcome the technical glitch. <laughs> we, we learned something, Frank. We I, it's not a glitch. <laughs> Yeah, it's not a glitch if you learn something. So if if, if right. for some reason uh, uh, the you know what hit the fan, then that that episode will be re-recorded at a future date. So we'll see. It will, but we've got uh, we've got a great topic today. You and I have been batting this around. I want I know it's been several weeks. It may have been a couple of months. Right. We've been talking about doing this. Right, absolutely. And uh, part of what motivates this, and based on uh, the release schedule that I anticipate. Uh, this will have already happened. I'm changing jobs at Microsoft. Woohoo! Um, What's your new job, I, Frank? I will be the data and AI technology architect at uh, the Reston uh, MTC or Microsoft Technology Center. Nice. So, congratulations. The, if you're not, 
Thank you very much. It's an honor to join uh, such a prestigious team. If you're not familiar with what the MTC is, MTC is a Microsoft Technology Center. There's about 80 of them around the world, uh, and they basically are uh, meant to provide uh, specific experiences um, and as well as architecture design guidance for customers around the world. Um, and uh, it's an honor to be kind of in that team. It's it very rarely does an opening happen in right. an MTC. So yeah. uh, when one opened up in my neck of the woods, I was like, I have to take it. I have to at least try. Right. Right. <laughs> um, so fortunately, I, I am super excited. Um, and because um, that's what we say at Microsoft. We're super <laughs> excited. And uh, it, it, it's a great team. Great stuff that they do. They do a lot of work with the community. Uh, they do a lot of work with customers. It's just an awesome gig. I'm I'm really looking forward to it, and um, um, yeah, I'm really excited about it. Congratulations, brother! That's a Thank what a, what a what a great thing. Uh, and I think you're perfect for that job. I know um, I know someone else in that job at an MTC in the Northeast, and it's uh, it's kind of a rare breed of person that has to walk into that role because um, the it. Optimally, you have a smattering of exposure to all a whole slew of enterprise, uh, you know, architecture, and both both you and this other individual that I know um, fit that mold. You you've got programming experience, software development experience, and you also have data experience. And it's just rare to be good at both of those things. I, I you know it's, I, but I know you're good at it, and I know uh, my other friend is good at this as well. So I just. I just think it's going to be a great fit for you, Frank. Um, I'm excited you got it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, So with that, one of the things that I've been ramping up on uh, in anticipation for this job or whatever opportunity I was going to go to next, um, I was learning more about the quote-unquote traditional side of the data world, which let, let let me kind of explain my little worldview which as twisted and as weird as it may be, it might actually be right. Um, I see this a lot in my current uh, or current or old role, uh, <laughs> current as of April 16th role, is that we have data and AI cloud solution architects. But there's a very clear line of demarcation between the data scientist part of the data and AI CSAs and the SQL veterans uh, side of things. So and I actually had a call this morning where it was uh, it was very, very much laid bare because we were talking about that and um, that there's essentially kind of two types of data and AI folks at Microsoft for sure, um, probably everywhere else too. You have the RDBMS folks. The, these folks have been doing SQL since it was a Sybase joint venture, right? Right, right. Um, that's their world. And you have kind of the... Uh, big data open source kind of tooling world, right? The folks that are more comfortable in Spark or Hadoop um, or with the crazy statistics and math around um, machine learning and AI, right? You kind of have those two. Rarely do the two, rarely do you have a person who's comfortable and happy in both. I am aiming to be happy and comfortable in both. Obviously, I'm more in the data uh, science kind of world, and part of my part of what I see as the opportunity in this new role is to grow into the the kind of the SQL RDBMS traditional database world. Okay, does that, that make sense? Fair. No, it makes perfect sense. And I mean, coming at coming at this from you know we as we've shared in each show the past few days that we've recorded, um, we've known each other for like fifteen years. And most of that time, you were a professional software developer. Um, you were a, um, a Microsoft MVP uh, in, um, I forget which discipline it was, Frank. I know it was software development related. I think the world has forgotten that this discipline ever existed. <laughs> Tablet PC. <laughs> Tablet PC, right. Okay. And uh, you did an awful lot in there. And I know there's a lot of people out there working in what, what that evolved into, mobile. Um, that benefited from uh, the blog, blog posts you shared, solutions you shared, and, and all of that. But um, yeah, that whole mobile thing turned out not to be such a uh, trend. Uh, you know, it, it it was a trend, it, it, and it evolved 
uh, into what it is now. Um, and having that experience, I think, is you're going to find that that plays well into kind of backfilling, like you said, or, or filling this other bucket that you want to go after, which is traditional uh, T-SQL. And I know, I know from experience and dabbling in machine learning and AI, I'm, I'm on the opposite side of the fence, although I'm not really that good at, um, you know, I'd say like DBA level T-SQL. Um, but I, I, you know, I can, I can hold my own in there, but if we're, if we're selling tuning, performance tuning to a client, um, I may be involved in the project, but rarely am I the person actually performing the tuning. There are lots of people out there that we subcontract as a, as a consulting firm, um, Enterprise Data and Analytics. We bring others in who are better at that, much better at that than I am. And we have people on the team who are much better than I am as well. Um, but it's uh, I think your experience has, has you know, has set you up really well to make this transition. And it, it will, like everything else, right? We talked about this in the other shows. It takes time and it's frustrating. But I think you're well positioned to, uh, to, to pick up this skill as fast or faster than almost anyone else I know. I just, well, thank you. No, well, I, you know, I think part of it is it's too, good. I'm not, I'm not completely like naive to the ways of our DBMS. You know, my, I took SQL in college and database design in college mm -hmm. and my professor worked with COD and date. Like, so, wow. you know, like, you know, I'm, I'm only two degrees of Kevin Bacon away <laughs> um, from the, from the founders of the theory. So, you know, that's going for me, but I never really got into just kind of the, the nuts and bolts of it. And I, I'm not, I'm not concerned about that. I'm actually fascinated about it because it's just another way to solve the same problem. Absolutely. And, um, ultimately at the end of the day, you're moving bits around and True. it's a question of what's your philosophy or obviously RDBMS has a philosophy and it, you know, I'm not knocking it. I mean, it worked well for 50, 60 years, yeah. uh, <laughs> but now we live in a world where there's a lot more unstructured data and how do you deal with that? And how do you deal with it now that you're not making assumptions about spinning disks, right? Right. Um, there's, right. There's, a whole, there's a lot of that. Yeah, a lot I think of it's that a Kevin design. Hazard. That's oh, Kevin ahead. Hazard, isn't it? Yeah, who talked about that on our show? That and there's still it's 2020, and I would right. say still most of our code is designed for that age of the heads That's picking cool. up, seeking a sector, and reading data, and then picking up again. You know? So there, there's there's a whole new opportunity where obviously relational databases are going to still matter, but they're just oh, sure. they're just going to be one of many tool sets. In fact, one of the things that I learned when I was doing startup evangelism for Microsoft was, you know, having debates with startup founders who are, I will say, I'll put them in the hipster category, right? Yep. I worked with, when you work with startups, it runs the gamut between really like, I mean, like the, this person's going to be the next Steve Jobs to this person is kind of like, mm, I think they're living on their parents' basement, but rather than saying they're unemployed, they have a thing. So somewhere in the middle, you kind of have what I have, the hipster ones, where they learned code mm -hmm. because of make their startup. Now, that's not nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. But to think that you're an expert in all things technology because you learned to code. Right. You know, right. and then you go to a person that is supposed to help you uh, take your stuff to the next level and kind of talk down to them so right right <laughs> that's the context of this conversation so they were basically lamenting the fact that they wanted to they wanted to have the reliability of um of an rdbms but they wanted right. to do it in a no sequel type of environment and, and i was and like that's a fair you know that's a fair thing to want i'm, I'm just all cards on the table approaching that architecturally that's that's not an unreasonable request um but unless and until you get into the engineering part of it and that's where you start to see that you just can't have everything that you want i mean there's no single uh do it all type application everything every software application ever and i'm going to maintain probably forever there are going to be applications there's going to be some spot that I define as a corner. It's something that the application or server or what have you doesn't do well. And, and what you'll often find is there's some other 
um, application out there that's available or some other platform. And it will do that part well. But again, that also has its corners. And so what you're trading is pain <laughs> you know, in the nicest right, way right. possible. You're picking your, uh, you're picking your poison, picking your pain. What is it that you want to fight? Uh, and it depends on, you know, relational databases have their pain points. NoSQL, it turns out a lot of companies have learned this over the past few years, also has its pain points as well. So You can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, you might get, <laughs> you get what you need. Awesome. Um, uh, no, so, I mean, part of it is, you know, sometimes whether it's technology or anything else, you have kind of these dueling philosophies. Oh, and there's a point where they just won't meet just because of they're, they're kind of philosophically opposed. And you're right. You have to kind of pick which one you want to have over the other. Yeah. Um, and there's cause and effect to that. Yep. So uh, with, uh, with that kind of deep philosophical, uh, you, you were a data philosopher. So that's good. <laughs> So I wanted to talk to you about, um, we wanted to do a deep dive. It's not officially a deep dive until I, I have fun with my soundboard there. That's it. Um, yeah. Into data warehousing. What is data warehousing? Where did it start? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll channel a little bit of BoJack Horseman. What is data warehousing? What do they know? Do they know things? Let's find out. <laughs> Well, you know, data warehousing, in, in my opinion and in my experience, is really this idea of, of collecting data from all over different places and um, you know, placing it into a centralized location. Now, there's, there's some distinctions and there's other scientific um, you know, answers to that question. And you can actually build something that today is not considered a technically a data warehouse. You can you can gather all of the information that's spread across the enterprise in different places into what's now called an operational data store. And it's not totally unlike a data warehouse. I th in fact, I think the Euler diagrams have quite a bit of overlap uh, for that. At least if we if we uh, kind of improve. Or, or add to the word data warehouse or the term data warehouse with relational data warehousing. There's a lot of overlap between relational data warehousing and an operational data store. Um, so I don't want to confuse that really with our listeners, but I just want to make you aware if you hear ODS or, or DW or EDW, it could be that they're talking about largely the same thing. Um, and when you think about like... You think about supply chain management, which is a topic on everyone's mind these days as we're uh, talking about the economic impact of the pandemic. Um, supply chains are where really where um, are really way more important than we realize. And it's kind of like oxygen or money. You don't recognize how important it is until you don't have enough. <laughs> so it's and supply chains are like this. And, and you can think of a data warehouse in, in that terminology, the analogy holds for quite a bit. And I'm going to, I'm just going to use um, Walmart and Amazon as, you know, as kind of uh, examples of this. They, they both have these distribution centers and they have these networks set up all over the United States, probably all over the world. And it's places where the, you know, the goods come from the source and they're trucked into, you know, they may be collected at other points along the way, but that they're trucked into these large, physically large warehouses and then stocked. And then from there, they're actually shipped out to, in the case of Amazon, usually they're, they're handed off to uh, some delivery service. Um, in the case of Walmart, they're placed on other Walmart trucks that are shipped to the stores, the actual brick and mortar stores. And that warehouse in the middle, that distribution center, that's what I think of when I think of data warehouses. I think of the uh, the electronic equivalent of that because, you know, there's all of these, you'll see, especially at what I consider an EDW, Enterprise Data Warehouse, you've got a collection of companies that have been acquired in mergers and acquisitions. And they're looking at, I want to get all of their data uh, at, you know, what they have. And I want to bring that into this one location and that I want it there for a number of reasons, but the, uh, one of the big reasons is so I can query that data and I can learn how my entire enterprise is performing. 
How's it working? And and in that, if I apply that Walmart Amazon analogy to that, you know, to the data there, the the reports that come out of querying a data warehouse, those are like the uh, end user customers uh, for Amazon, say, and and like the Walmart stores uh, in in that other analogy. So it's and and it really turns out, Frank. It's it's always good to to answer the question, what's the problem we're trying to solve? And here's the problem most people are trying to solve with an enterprise data warehouse. They want to know how's my business doing today? And and if they can answer that question, that that's going to be answered by a report of some kind or an analytics dashboard. Still a report in my mind. It's and the best analogy is something we're we're used to. It's a stoplight. Are we green? Everything's good or good enough. Are we yellow? Some things are in trouble. And most enterprise data warehouses during the uh, pandemic are going to be showing yellow <laughs> or, or right. some, some red. We're in trouble. There's going to be very few showing green. And, but that's, the, that's kind of the, the thing that you want. You want to know at the very highest level, are we good? Are we bad? Or are we somewhere in the middle? And of course, you want to always be able to drill in, especially if things are, you know, in the warning state or in the bad state. You definitely want to drill in, see what the problem is, pick up more information about that. But at the very tippy top, uh, you want to be able to answer that question. How are we doing today? So I have two questions. Um, one is you mentioned that with mergers and acquisitions, you want to have one place for all the data to live. Sure. How is how is a data warehouse different than a data lake? That's a that's a really good question. So you can think about um, data lakes being a, a, a similar collection point. So from a purely functional uh, standpoint, I've you know my experience with data lakes I'll share is limited. Uh, so that you know to take this with a grain of salt, but I consider data lakes to be more of just a a collection of the data a copy of the data in its raw or raw-ish state. And when I draw a line between what I call a data warehouse and what I call an operational data store, they're more on that side of the operational data store. They're more of a copy of the data from wherever it's come from. Now, I know for a fact, working with people who work with data lakes, that they see that a little bit differently, and I'm not going to speak for them, but I just know that my definition and their definition differs a little bit because you, you can achieve an awful lot of what an enterprise data where, uh, warehouse does for you um, in, in delivering those results that answer the question, how are we doing today? You can achieve a lot of that just going to, by querying, directly querying the data in a data lake. And the same can be said for an ODS. So don't, don't, don't um, you know, I'm trying to mix and match here and draw some distinctions. I wish I could share with you the picture in my mind. <laughs> So, but maybe we'll add it to the show notes. Well, no, we'll so, do our best. <laughs> um, so one of the, I mean, one of the things is that uh, someone on my side, where I kind of see, I see things from more of the data lake point of view. You just want to place the for stuff to land, whether that's coming right. from streaming data from OT or from various types of data stores. You just want a place to put the stuff. Absolutely. So yeah. One of the things I've seen in, in architectures is that, at least kind of in more modern architectures, uh, because historically, I think data warehouses have been used like data lakes. Oh, they have. But yeah. um, one of the things that at least data warehouses have, they still assume a schema, right? Like you still have to have a schema, right, for it to be in a data warehouse. So, but so if you have completely unstructured data, uh, you're still dealing with the primacy of the schema, right? Is that that's that a fair? fair. Thing? It is, and and you know what I was going to share too is just thinking through this a little bit more. It, you know, and I, one of the distinctions that I'll make from certainly from a relational data warehouse uh, between that and an operational data store is, you know, there's there's a little bit of hybrid here, and let's just kind of I'm going to take ODS out of the picture for just a minute. And I'm going to talk about staging. Uh, from an uh, extract, transform, and load, or ETL, or data engineering, data integration, whatever you want to call it, uh, perspective, whatever the format that data's in, when it starts its trek, 
into, you know, into whatever we're going to end up with, with an EDW. When it begins that, the very first thing I like to do, and that is an area where I specialize, is I want to get a copy of that data into some central location. Now, it could be that that central location is, is a data lake. And often in modern data warehouses, they are. Uh, it goes into a data lake. But it could also be a, a relational database. Or it could be a, a you know just a, a centralized collection of files. And there's a lot of things that you can define here, but there's this concept of it at the very first step, collecting and staging. It's all here now. And I still do that when I'm designing, you know, ETL solutions for customers. I get it to that first step, that first place first. And I want to get it all there. And I mostly deal still with um, relational data warehouses that go to uh, tabular models or cubes, um, you know, some sort of analytics uh, solution. And, you know, when I do that, Frank, if I'm, if, let's say I want to load data from files into a SQL server. I load that data, it, it's just as, um, as constraint-free as possible. So if it exists in the file, I want to read whatever's in that field and bring it into a, a table, what we would call a heap in, um, in relational database management. If there's any constraint on it, it's some sort of identity column uh, that's just, you know, counting the rows, basically enumerating the rows. And that's there just to make sure nothing, no row is identical to any other row. And that would be the only constraint I would place on that. And I would do the same for a data lake. You know, if we were pumping data into a data lake, I want to get all of the data from all of the places into the stage first. So that's, that's kind of the very first step that I do. After that, we then began applying what you just said. We, we format it into a schema. Uh, we make it make sense. The very first thing I would do if I was staging it into, a say, a SQL Server table, a heap, that the very next step would be read the heap and take these, uh, these text columns that contain dates and numeric values and try to fit them into date and numeric fields, right? I would make that attempt. And if something happens and it won't fit, maybe one of the date columns has February 30th in it. Um, you know, maybe somebody fat fingered something and put the 13th month in there. Anything could happen. I want to redirect that row and try to store that data, but I want a human to look at it. And that can happen in a data lake. It can happen in loading heaps, uh, tables from, um, from anything else. But the idea is I want to pick up whatever's out there, get it into this engine that I can then apply these rules to, like and my very first rule is, is strong typing. I want to make sure that I get all of the values that are valid out of there. And I also want to mark the invalid values for later. Um, so, and eventually we flow down this to the, to the end and we get to a place where, you know, we've got uh, a collection of all of the values we've ever loaded and you know, we then fit our new data, our new load, we, we fit that new data into that prospect. But not before going through that staging process, then some, some cleansing. And I would that first step in cleansing for me is strong typing. Usually there's a second step that uh, minimally, you know, minimal of another step that applies soft rules. So if I'm loading claims data for an insurance company and I've got a claim initiated date, um, I, and I may have a claim closing date or settle date. I want to check a soft rule would be the claim settle date is uh, greater than the claim initialized date. You know, stuff like that. That makes sense. So kind of like common sense rules. So so I guess it, uh, you said you want to remove the constraints. So it, it, that probably plays into the fact that you hear the term denormalization uh, being used a lot. Is that is that what they're so, referring to? Somewhat. Um, usually I apply denormalization when we get to the end of a relational funnel here where I'm loading, um, you know, ETL uh, stuff. And, and what I'm after there is, um, is flattening out the data so that it's ready for the consumption in these reports that tell me, how's my, how's my enterprise doing today? Um, and, and you get um, various uh, various and sundry opinions about denormalizing data. 
Um, if you think about third normal form, something you mentioned earlier, the the premise behind uh, Codd's rules of, of normal forms and normalization is that one of the principles is you only want to have data live in one place. So this value you want in a single location, you don't want to copy it in 14 different places or even even two. You want to be able to keep it in one location because if that data needs to be changed or if we make a change to it, we want to we don't want to have to go hunt it down. <laughs> it's here. Right. And also also one of the canonical examples is an address. Right. Right. So and I think this is really uh, to me anyway, this this underscores kind of what's why the two philosophies on that are important and why they're both compatible in a sense. So if you have an address, if I if I'm a, more like an online transaction uh platform right right oltp um or processing that's what the tp stands for not toilet paper although people reporting it (laughs) um but um uh but but if you're dealing with like a a real-time transaction you want to know the customer's current address exactly right and but if you want to do kind of sorry go ahead no go ahead but if you want to know historically if you're doing reports on where customers have sent stuff or what their addresses have been, then you would want to, but by definition, you kind of have to store those address in more than one place that this order was placed on this date and was sent to that address, as opposed to this is where customer X lives today. They live in this address. Absolutely. And that's a great example. And, and there's a yet another use case. Some people own multiple homes and so they have multiple current addresses and this is where you start getting into things, you know, kind of getting interesting. I'll say it that way <laughs> in in data warehousing. But that's um, if you look at the percentage of all of the people who have an address uh, in the world, most of them by far have a single address at a time and, and they go through this. But you do definitely have to account uh, for those customers who may have something shipped to say one location and, and kind of like going back to Amazon, this has happened to me. I own, you know, I have one address. I own one home. Uh, well, me and a mortgage company. Um, but I have been on vacation and ordered from Amazon and had it shipped to the address where I was, you know, overnight uh, there as well. So it's while it look, this is one of the things that looks simple that, um, you know, is not so simple. And a friend of mine uh, and co-author, Tim Mitchell, He's a ETL specialist and Tim actually blogged. He wrote a really good blog post about, you know, how fuzzy some of these concepts can be. And I believe the title was what is a day <laughs> so you think about well, it. It's like, well, yeah. You know, at Tim Mitchell.net, if you want to check that out and search for it. And it, he brought up some really good use cases. You know, what is and a we'll day? You would think, sure. And, and we think that's simple. No, it's not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, Part of what happens, and I kind of skipped right over this, is when I'm collecting data from these different locations, um, you know, as as I'm doing ETL, it could be somebody has a warehouse in Liverpool, England, and they've got a bunch of warehouse locations in Canada and the U.S. and Mexico and maybe even in East, uh, East Asia, wherever. They store dates in different formats. Yeah. So at... I could have what looks like a 13th month, right? I could have 13-03-2020. You and I know because we work with us so much that that's that's referring to the 13th of March. But in the United States, we would reverse the first two. We would have 03-13-2020. And one one of the goals of data warehousing or even ODS is to collect that data and then pick a format. It doesn't matter which, just pick one and make that the format you're going to use for dates. The same goes for other measurements that you're using. And, and it can go beyond that. Um, the weights in some locations are going to, you know, if I set up a something that includes how much something weighs in Germany, I'm probably going to get kilograms. But if I do that in Wisconsin, I'm going to get pounds. Nothing against Wisconsin, nothing against Germany. It's just different. So we have to convert so that when we do comparisons on how much things weigh, it doesn't matter which measure we pick, by the way. We, it just needs to be consistent so that we can compare apples to apples. If we're trying to tell which is heavier, something that weighs two pounds or something that weighs two kilograms, we're going to get different answers. 
No, that's a good point. That's a good yeah. point. And uh, there's all those sorts of things. And and you're right when you when it comes to you kind of narrowing down, what do you mean by this? And I think one example that's not necessarily data related was uh, I was on a mapping project. Uh, it was basically for a hotel chain in uh, they wanted to map out local points of interest, right in San Francisco. And um, this was all done in Silverlight maps and all that. Very cool 3D work, although it doesn't work anymore, but take my word for it. It was awesome. Yep. Um, but uh, one of the questions that I had, and I worked with the, I worked, uh, I worked with the, the manager of the hotel, is, you know, they wanted to be able to, to put pins on, you know, various points of interest. Now, for some things, that's easy. Right. But when it came to, like, a park, well... Where's the entrance to the park? Where is the park, really? Like, right? Yeah, I think it was Golden Gate State Park or whatever. It was mm-hmm. like, well, well, where is the park? Where do you want that pin to be? Right. Do you want it to be at the center of the park? Do you want it to be at the gate, or do you want it to be the part that was ultimately they went with the part that was closest to the hotel? So mm. it, their distance was not was a little bit less. Mm. But I mean, yeah. I mean, but I mean, like you know, how do you define where something is precisely? That's that's a you know, and that that. Ultimately, you know, I think it should come down to what's the problem you're trying to solve, which yep. in this case was, you know, how do you get there and sort of thing. So uh, it's an interesting problem that data modeling and as well as geospatial stuff kind of does get into. Sure. Yeah, it really is. And, and you know, when you start looking at that, people could say, well, you're fudging, you know, the answer because maybe there's only one entrance to the park and you want to show who's closest and you happen to be closest to you know, the complete opposite end of the park. And yet, right. if you're a hotel, you may want to advertise, hey, we're closer to the park than anyone else, even though you can't get in that way. You know, and it's not... Well, in, in this case, I, I uh, uh, working with them, they wanted to make sure that they, you know, it was the entrance closest to them was, gotcha. I think, what they were yeah. going for. Yeah. And that's, that's yeah, I mean, fair. Totally. Yeah, totally, totally. fair. Like, I remember... Sorry, go ahead. go ahead, Frank. No, go ahead. Oh, real estate... Uh, people play this game all the time. Like, you know, they say they're, they're minutes from New York city. Okay. 90 minutes, 10 minutes. <laughs> right. You know? Yep. Um, you know, I, I once um, uh, looked at a, um, looked at a property this is back when I lived up there. They said that they were 10 minutes from New York city hmm. and it was in Bayonne. And I'm like, that's not possible. <laughs> Turns out, Remember, Staten Island is technically part of New York City. So you True. were 10 minutes in Staten Island. No knock on uh, Staten Island. I was born there. So, you know, respect to Shaolin, as Wu-Tang would say. Um, <laughs> if you have no idea what I'm talking about, that's fine. I'll explain it another day. Um, but um, no, I, I, I mean, was it true? Yes. Was it accurate? No, well, yeah. But was it meaningful? No. Because mm. most people, when they say New York City, they you you assume Manhattan, and right now, and that was closer to sixty minutes or sixty five minutes, which wow. again is minutes away. It's just yeah, yeah, a personal pet peeve. Sorry, I just well, no, that. it's it's accurate, <laughs> and it's like you said. You know, I I play this game all the time with data. Um, the, the difference between accuracy and truth, and right. and really in the middle, there's this whole other thing where it, it, it's all the art of communication, right? Um, and uh, the fact that the book, How to Lie with Statistics, was written in the 40s is a clue. Not new. Yeah, uh, People have been playing these games with statistics and, uh, and our language and, and the exactitude of our language. A lot of people throw off on King James English, but mm-hmm. it was very accurate. <laughs> so it was way more precise <laughs> than, than what we use now. And you know, there's all of this science that goes into uh, literally and in, into tricking someone into believing what you want them to believe while presenting non-truth using accurate terms. And, and one, just one of them, one trick is anchoring. Uh, and if you haven't read about anchoring, it is a, a you know, it's, it, you can just suggest any number. It has nothing to do with anything else. But if that number is, is a high number, and then you ask someone to estimate some other thing that, that it's been shown, it's been proven over and over again. They will guess higher um, on that estimate. And if you then anchor them with a very low number and do the same trick, 
you know, different group of people, maybe different day, they'll guess consistently lower. The estimation is is anchored to the number they previously heard. And it's just, it's a scientific fact about the way the human mind works. So, yeah. you know, you can, no, that makes it, a lot of sense. well, we can see this, you know, we see this in data probably um, and these days more, more so maybe than, than before is we're looking at statistics dealing with um, the pandemic and uh, a friend, um, Andrea Benedetti, who is uh, as, as a Microsoft employee, Power BI specialist, pretty sure he was an MVP before he joined Microsoft. He lives in Italy and he's been um, posting uh, at aka.ms slash COVID report. And he's been updating this almost daily with numbers from around the world um, about that. He he posted about a week or so back that when he stops and thinks about the numbers and realizes these are lives, especially the lives that are lost. It, you, yeah. you, it's almost what he was saying was like, you almost can't do this kind of work and keep that in your mind at the same time. You it's as I don't know the right word for this, but it's in my opinion, it's a noble thing to do. It's like when I hear about jaded doctors uh, and nurses, yeah. I, my first thought these days is what did it take to get you to jaded? You know, it's like if your options are functioning jaded or not functioning in that role, especially in these days, Frank, I'll take yeah. jaded. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's you don't understand. You know, it's real easy to sit back and armchair armchair quarterback and say, you know, you, should, you know, you should not disengage your emotions. You should just do this job. I mean, my uh, ex-wife, my ex-wife's a neonatal intensive care unit nurse. Um, yeah. And. and I, you know, I've had some insight into what this can do um, when someone loses a patient, especially an infant. It's crazy hard. And to ask people to just, no, I want you to keep feeling everything. I, it's like, I don't think you understand really what you're asking folks to do. And Andrea mentioned now, something like that. You know, these numbers are lives. These numbers are so, people. So, so two things. One on the numbers aspect. We've addressed this before. Um and the story is, um, you, you can go back and listen to it. We've been recording almost three years. So yeah, crazy wow. that we have that much content. But um, you had done a, a thing about uh, collecting data about the hurricane and, and all that. And, yes. you know, I kind of said offline, you know, I mean, these are people's lives. And yeah. kind of the, the story behind this was when um, I, I, I'm a survivor of the attack on the World Trade Center on 9-11. Uh, don't want to go down that rabbit hole right now. <laughs> Um, right. But I was sharing my pictures that I took um, with the with researchers and kind of people that were uh, doing the fire research over at NIST. Um, you know, mm. there was this moment where I didn't respond to the guy in a while. And, you know, he was he, he I basically said, sorry, I've been to like maybe about seven or eight funerals this week because, you know, what happened. And right. And then he kind of wrote back he goes you know it's really hard i forget sometimes that when i look at the pictures of the burning building i'm looking at people's basically death scene and right. you know he he was kind of like the funeral thing kind of i don't know brought him back to that like these are people's lives like and and, yeah. and you're right i mean one of the things that i did when i was in college i i about halfway through college i i originally went to college to be a, an engineer chemical engineer then switched to computer science we talked about that in the previous episode, kind of the, the the humorous aspect of that. But about midway through, I thought, well, when I was I, maybe I want to go to pre med, and I became an EMT and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. it's a it's a hard job because you really have to kind of mentally insulate yourself from what's happening around you. Absolutely. And, and the hardest part of that job was really the the emotional toll because mm -hmm. you can you can see somebody injured and and kind of think about it almost like a car, like not a living thing, like you have to repair this. You have to patch that up. Right. That kind of helps you do it. But then like what kind of what sticks with you is, you know, why would one human being, being do that to another person? And that, that yeah. psychological aspect. So I have, I've always had respect for the medical community because they can kind of do that. But I think it's, you know, that, that separation of kind of what you're seeing from what it means, I think right. is a core uh, survival instinct that 
I think all people have to a certain degree, but the medical people have really um, perfected it. Well, and, you know, it's a whole concept there. I think we're dancing around empathy and, and being yeah. able to, to not turn it off, but maybe turn it down um, yes. so that you can continue to function logically uh, and walk through the steps, especially in the case of an EMT. And Frank, I say this being the type of person who cannot do that. It is not possible um, for me to do that consciously. But I had this one experience, um, went through, of course, I worked in manufacturing back in the 90s. I was a plant electrician. We had to go through first aid just in case. And late one night, I'm on third shift, and we had a medical emergency occur. Now, keep in mind that at the end of the medical training, the nurse, registered nurse that delivered this training to us, first aid and such, she says to me, Andy, if somebody gets hurt, you take a flashlight and go outside and wave down the ambulance. Make sure they know how to get into the plant parking lot because you're not going to be very helpful. And it, they weren't wrong. Um, right. You know, just listen to my responses to this. But here's, this did happen. Somebody got hurt and they were potentially in a life-threatening situation. And um, it, I guess it was my old Army basic training first aid kicked in or something. But as soon as I realized, the first thing I, I saw the person, I was the first one to see them uh, come out of the place where they had been hurt. Um, I won't explain in detail, but I could tell they were hurt. It was very easy to glance at this person and realize they were hurt bad. Um, the, I, I, I remember thinking, Frank, I'm the only one here who can help right now. Right. The rest of the people were working on the other side of the building. It was a large facility. And when once I had that thought, it was like the entropy uh, entropy. <laughs> the, yeah. It's it was it was like the you know the emotional connections they all then the empathy they just turned off and I just went into gear and realizing that I was able to help them I, I won't say I saved their life I don't think so but I definitely helped um, you know by getting to them first calling nine one one and doing first aid so yeah. it, you know I I've had that experience so I can kind of relate to just a, a you know a thousandth of a percent of what it must be like being in medicine on a normal day. And these are yeah. not normal days. No, nah, it's so, true. It's yeah. true. It, it's, um, you know, God bless people who can do that and who are doing it. Agreed. Agreed. So, but, um, um, so one last question sure, on sure. the data warehouse, uh, deep dive. Mm-hmm. I think we've kind of danced around about denormalization, but what, star schema versus snowflake schema. Yeah, so I consider snowflakes to be actually a, a, a component of star. Um, it's a way to represent uh, hierarchies in a star schema. You can have a snowflake dimension. A great example of that is found in the AdventureWorks database where they have products that are um, have subcategories, and subcategories are related to categories. Um, when, when you load that data, of course, you want to start at the top of the hierarchy, load categories first, because there could be a brand new category that has a brand new subcategory that has a brand new product. If you try to load that from the bottom, what you want to do is you want to kind of you know, grab these uh, keys that uh, are artificial. We call them surrogate keys. You want to grab that from the next level up on the hierarchy. So you have to load it from the top down uh, to get that in. And um, and, and adding confusion to this these days is there is a data a database engine called Snowflake, and I was it's a say. totally yeah. online um, engine. And I am not an expert in it, but I do know just from uh, working closely with someone who is an expert in it that um, it's it's really fast for loading large amounts of data um, as as long as uh, you're not trying to maintain like updates to that data. It, it gets painfully slow when you try to update data in that platform. Again, uh, there are um, advantages and disadvantages. And the truth is, Frank, there's some data that you never update. Like um, you never hear the weather person say, yeah, I know we said yesterday the high was 55 Fahrenheit, but it was really 56. That, that never no. happens. <laughs> you know, right. That, right. that data is set and it's recorded that way, whether it's right or wrong, it's recorded that way for that time. Um, Financial currency exchange rates, same sort of thing. They pick a day time, some agency runs the algorithms and bam, you don't ever hear them changing that. That's not updated. 
So if you're loading that kind of forward only type data, um, you know, any kind of platform that's good at inserts is going to be really good at managing that type of data. So, and, and there's other ways to attack updates as well. You can do these transactional things where you have a from date and a to date appended to the data. And you can convert then your, you know, maybe uh, data that is being updated, the way you update it is you, you put in, um, you know, it's from this date time to this other date time. Maybe it is updated from the last time, but you're inserting a new row every time that there's an update. And you see this in accounting, generally accepted accounting uh, practices, uh, double entry, dual entry ledgers. They're done that way all the time, every time. Uh, even if there's a mistake, even somebody goes to the bank and takes out, you know, $200 and, um, you know, they only get 100 don't realize it till later and they have to adjust that. What you'll see, you won't see them erase the 200 and put 100. They will add another entry that says there's an extra $100 in that account. That's the way that accounting works on paper. Um, and again, it's an update, but it's a transactional kind of list or log, if you will, um, that says, nope, mm. we just add a new transaction to fix the mistake. So, so it's kind of like HBase that way, where once data is in the ledger, it's immutable. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great way, much better way to say that than I did. <laughs> ah, Jesuit education, I guess. <laughs> I got I got a bag yeah. full of them twenty dollar words. That's funny, <laughs> but yeah, um, you know, there's so the a lot of ways to attack it. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, oh no, go ahead. I was just going to say there's a lot of ways to solve some of the same problems, you know, that we're doing, and we can end up uh, playing to the strengths of the software that we're using or the platform that we're using. We always want to do that because speed is king, especially these days or queen. It's true. It's true. Um, so, what are your thoughts as a as a light as a long time kind of data warehouse data engineer? What are your thoughts on Synapse? Uh, Azure Synapse is meant to be kind of the next generation of SQL data warehouse. Um, I have seen presentations where I've kind of seen the bigger picture, and it's fascinating. Yeah. But um, what are your thoughts about that? So I've not yet uh, used Azure Synapse. And I don't know of anyone personally that has. I can't even get access to it, and I like to think I'm one of the cool kids. <laughs> I, to my, uh, you know, to my discredit at this point, I haven't yet attempted to to gain access to it. So I'm looking at the I'm looking at it purely based on marketing information, and and we know uh, marketing information is usually accurate. Um, but we had that discussion earlier about accuracy versus <laughs> truth. So there's a caveat hanging off that. So. Having not, um, you know, sort of hung it on the wall and uh, thrown the switch, I, I don't know enough to really give you experience-based feedback on that. But what I can tell you from just kind of a general architectural overview, I, I have seen enough information, uh, not only from marketing people, but some, from some practitioners and, and the, the way they're approaching solving the problem they're trying to solve. It, it very much appears to be a, a next generation uh, type thing. And Frank, I've written a couple of books with design patterns in the cover in the title, well, one, two editions of the same book, SSIS Design Patterns. And I think about that a lot when I'm when I'm speaking architecturally. And I use this analogy to describe just the concept of design patterns. You can think about it as like Legos, right? Everybody, maybe everybody has played with Legos. I did. And you build that, you're going to build a Lego wall. So you put a few Legos, you know, bottom up against each other, and that's your, your base. And then you build your next layer on top of them. And, you know, another layer on top of those. And before you're done, you know, you've got three, maybe eight um, Legos high. You've got this wall. I picture design patterns that way. And elegant patterns lend themselves to that sign, that kind of, of um, you know, um, self-similarity, um, just at different scales. And, it, it, you know, the more you, the more you're able to do that, once you're able to take these basic functions like storing data, reporting data, um, you know, data acquisition, um, uh, you know, all of these pieces, once you put these together, that's kind of like your base bottom part. 
But then if you can add a little bit of automation to each of those, now you're building on that second layer and, and maybe on that third layer. And I think that's where Synapse is. I think it's a, I think it's at least number two, maybe third layer where they're starting to group these together under a common um, interface and, and kind of mask some of the complexity that happens beneath that. And I'm totally all for that. I'm, a, I'm an automation freak. You know this. Um, <laughs> and it, that's what it looks like to me. It looks like they're trying to simplify the stuff that, that could be challenging. Does that mean challenges won't exist in it? Goodness, no. They will, and you'll still need uh, expert help in these other areas here, and you know, in specific areas. But you may not need you may not need as much as you did before. So, what what I like about this division of labor is you're applying expertise only where you need it. And in other words, another way to look at it is you're not hiring an expert to come in and do this very basic stuff for you. You've automated that. Um, so you don't need to pay an expert, expert wages to do that pretty, you know, what we consider kind of menial for the expert. Um, if you automate those types of things away, and there's a slew of that available in tons of examples, um, business intelligence markup language is one for generating SSIS packages. Um, you know, staging is a pretty simple pattern. Read the data and write it into, you know, this this heap, as I talked about earlier. That's a pattern that doesn't, you know, you don't want to pay somebody a bajillion dollars an hour to do that. You can get a junior person to do that type of work. Even better, you pay someone who has expertise in BIML, business intelligence markup language, and they just build it all for you through automation. And I got some wild stories about that. My, my biggest anecdote is I did 10 and a half months of work um, in three and a half days. So wow. it's, it's that kind of game changing stuff. Again, as long as you can get, uh, you know, as long as you create an interface that masks the drudgery of repetitive work away, then you only need experts for the, the places where you need expertise. And, and that can change the game. It changes it economically and it changes it from a technological standpoint as well. So interesting. that's that's what appeals to me about the, the tidbits I've gleaned from listening to people talk about Synapse and looking at a couple of, uh, you know, a couple of demos. I'm a, as an MVP, I, I get uh, very honored to be able to do these product group interactions uh, with Microsoft. And, and I've attended a, at least one of those. I want to say maybe two. And we get to see a little behind the scenes. Not much. It's not as much as you think. Um, but, you know, we're talking to the team, not and nothing against the marketing people. They're doing their thing and, and God bless them. We need them. But I'm talking to the engineers. <laughs> you know, I'm watching right, them use right. it. People that are making those decisions about what's possible, what's practical. Exactly. Yeah, you, definitely get a, you definitely get a better uh, or a clearer picture of what's going on. I would on. say, yeah, I would say different. It's nothing, not the, again, marketing is doing its thing and I'm not a marketing not person. Clearer, or at least right, closer. Right. To the course. There we go. Yeah, I agree with you. And it is definitely clearer. And it makes more sense to me because I am an engineer, so I, I right. get it. But that's as you, Thompson would say, the main nerve. That, there we go. And so, you know, in a nutshell, I would say um, Azure Synapse, based on again my my limited exposure to it, appears to be one of these next level jumps. And I refer to these often as tectonic. They're laying down a whole new layer here, you know, and they're building on, like on my, my Lego example, they're building the next layer of the wall. If that's what it looks like, those are, um, you know, I, they used to be every decade or so we'd have that sort of stuff, but it's accelerating. So now I'm seeing a couple of three times a decade where we get this new tectonic shift in what's, what we can do and automation that's built on top of the uh, previous layer of automation. That's how I see it. So don't know if that helps or hurts. No, it definitely helps. Um, so with that, uh, we're at the hour. Uh, just want to point out, I also have a meeting I got to go on to. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, we had a great session here. Hopefully uh, this answers some of your data warehousing questions. And uh, if you want, we could do another deep dive. Uh, and uh, let us know what you think of the show. 
Um, if you're interested in ebooks or, or not ebooks, audiobooks, uh, Audible is a sponsor, so go check it out. I should probably see if there's any good data warehousing books on Audible. Yeah, I don't know. A, a lot of them have to be written, I think, because of the yeah, examples. Yeah, I like, I don't know, but it'd be interesting to see if there are. I'll, I'll do a search. If you are not already an Audible subscriber and you would like to get one free audiobook on on our dime, um, or actually it's Audible's dime, um, and you go to thedatadrivenbook.com, routes you to an Audible page. If you get a subscription after that, they, um, they toss us a, a dime or two and help support the show. Uh, particularly given that my monetization strategy has been primarily driven through um, Amazon merch, which has been shut down. Yeah. <laughs> Every It'll little bit back. helps. It'll be back. It'll be back. It'll be back. Teespring <laughs> is still shipping. So Very true. Very true. Uh, I, that, that design that I got in trouble with, um, I actually have one printed version on the way. So um, it'll be fun. Anyway. I'm not going to post it to Instagram. I'll just put it that way. Uh, but with that in mind, um, have a great day and stay safe out there. Any any other parting thoughts? Nope. That's perfect. Awesome. And we'll let the nice British lady end the show. Thanks for listening to Data Driven. Don't just listen. Become a data driver by going to datadriven.tv to sign up to join the community, access to special events, tips and tricks, and more. Sign up today at datadriven.tv.